Good evening. Have you ever been studying the Bible with someone and you come to a passage where there's some disagreement? And so you give your take on that passage, what you believe is the uh, correct interpretation, and they give what they believe is the correct interpretation. And so you kind of go back and forth until eventually they say, well, that's just your interpretation. You ever been involved in a conversation like that about the Bible? You've probably come across that at some point. Here's the thing. I don't believe that God intended for us to adhere to the idea that there are many different interpretations to a passage and you just kind of pick which one chooses or best fits your agenda. I believe God had one interpretation in mind. I mean, if it's strictly up to the person to decide for himself what a statement means, then there really is no right meaning. And what's the point? If we are pulled over by the police... And they come up to your door and say, do you know why I pulled you over? And you respond with, no, sir. And they say, the police officer says, well, you were, you were speeding. Uh, the posted speed limit sign is 55. And you say, well, that's just your interpretation. It's ridiculous in real life, and it's just as ridiculous when it comes to studying Scripture. Now, I do concede that there are a few passages that lend themselves to more than maybe one meaning. There are some passages of Scripture that are just hard to discern, and therefore we may come to uh, uh, an agree-to-disagree position about the interpretation. But with most passages of Scripture, oftentimes we default to the, that's just your interpretation, because maybe we haven't done the hard work of digging deeper to find what it actually means, or maybe we're just defaulting to our preconceived biases and notions. Interpretation asks the question, what does the text mean? What is God trying to say? Not, what do I want the text to mean, or what do I want God to be saying here? And once we've answered the question of what God is saying, we must then answer the question, so what? So what does this have to do with me? How do I apply this to my life? How does this make me a better disciple? God meant one thing. The notion that everyone is entitled to their own interpretation and that every interpretation is thus valid and right is is just simply ridiculous. That doesn't mean that the meaning of a passage isn't hard to discern. Some are. But just because a passage is difficult to understand doesn't mean that there are many different interpretations. We just have to dig deeper to find the proper meaning. You see, the Bible is not some mystical book that changes in its meaning depending on who's doing the reading. The Holy Spirit, speaking through inspired writers, meant something. And our job as Bible students is to figure out what God meant. You might remember the very beginning of this series, we talked about how there are four different aspects to Bible study. There is observation, which is laying the foundation. There is interpretation, which is building on that foundation. There is application, which is living in the structure we built, living in harmony with God's will. And then there is meditation, which is simply praying and reflecting on what God would have me to do and be. 
Again, observation is laying the foundation. Interpretation is building a solid structure. Application is about living in harmony with God's will. And the whole purpose of Bible study is to know God more fully, to love Him more fervently, and to obey Him faithfully. So all of these points are essential to that end. You cannot stop at observation and succeed at accomplishing the goal, just as you cannot stop at interpretation and reach the end goal. We have to consider all these things together. They're all interrelated. They all build on one another. And this morning or this evening, we're talking more about application. Application has to do with translating truth into living. You've heard me say this from time to time. So many times someone will make the comment that, you know, so-and-so knows the Bible like the back of their hand. And that's great. I know a lot of people who know the Bible and can recite many different verses from just memory. But what does that matter if you're not applying it? The end goal is not knowledge. The end goal is application of the knowledge. A preacher may be able to stand up and quote all of Psalm 119 in its entirety from the pulpit. But at some point, he's got to move from the reciting of the verse to applying the verse, right? Because as an audience, as listeners, as disciples who are trying to be better, we want to know how this affects our lives. Every preacher's sermon should answer the question, so what? The Bible is not merely meant to be read or studied. At some point, it has to be applied. And transformation does not occur without application. Application asks the question, what do I do? Now that I have observed and interpreted the text, what must I do with what I have learned? The goal of Bible study is not just to gain information, but to incite transformation. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, it states, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the Greek word for complete and thoroughly equipped here occur only once in the entire New Testament, and it's right here in this passage. The word complete means in fit shape or condition. Thoroughly equipped means all fitting together. And so what Paul is saying here is that God's word must be applied by each of us so that we will be fit and in good shape spiritually, that we may may faithfully hold together throughout all of life's circumstances. Let's briefly look at some passages that are relevant to application. The first one's Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 through 27. It says, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and all the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and it was a great fall. You see observation, interpretation there. You see the laying of the foundation and building on it. Here's another one, John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's not enough just to know it. You've got to apply it. The truth can't make you free unless you apply the truth. 
And notice what is written in James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Prove yourselves doers of the word. You don't just hear it. You take what you've heard and you do something with it. You put it into action. So hopefully you see the relationship in these passages between observation, interpretation, and application. You know, our Lord scolded the religious elite for what appeared to be a failure to take the scriptures and apply them. He says that they failed to read, that they failed to know, and they failed to understand. Let's not make the same mistake. Now, I have to admit that interpretation isn't always easy as I'm sure you've probably already discovered. And while we can do our best to observe and interpret a particular passage, we have to recognize that there are certain barriers that do exist and that can make our task even more difficult. But we've got to consider these barriers anyway. We've got to consider them as we interpret a particular, pa- a particular passage or else we're going to get off track real quickly. And the first one is a time barrier. We call this the chronological barrier. The last of the New Testament books was written about 90 AD, some 1900 years ago. The first five books of Moses in the Old Testament were written almost 3,500 years ago. There's a time gap, and we have to recognize that. Secondly, there is a space barrier or a geographical barrier. There are thousands of miles between us and the Middle East, Egypt, Asia Minor, the places where much of the writings of the Bible occurred. Many times we have taken a Western view of Scripture when in actuality we need to consider more of the setting, the time, and the place when these things happened. Rather than applying the Bible to our Western mindset, we need to be trying to place ourselves in the original setting. Third is a cultural barrier. We have to understand that there were customs of the time that are different than the customs of our day and time. There are huge differences between the way the Western world thinks and does things today, even among each other. But there is certainly a difference in the way we think and the way that they thought in the settings of Scripture. Then we have a language barrier, of course. This is the linguistic barrier. You know, the average Christian is not fluent in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, which can present some challenges to interpretation. Even those scholars who have interpreted the Bible, they face challenges with this. It can also be a great help, though, to our understanding. I don't believe that every Bible student or the average Bible student needs to be a Greek scholar. However, I do believe that a rudimentary understanding of the Greek language or the Hebrew language can really help in interpreting a certain passage of Scripture For instance, when you understand that in the original Greek, the word for baptism means immersion and nothing else, well, that kind of eliminates a lot of confusion on the subject, right? Baptism can never mean mean sprinkling or pouring, as, as some may be implemented today. It means immersion. That's what the word means in the original Greek, and you can't argue with the original language. The original often confirms or changes our way of thinking on things when we get in touch with the linguistic side of things. Then you have a literary barrier or a writing style barrier. There is a variety of terrain in Scripture. I'm sure you've noticed that as well. 
There are different literary forms in Scripture that require different methods of interpretation. For instance, we don't speak in parables and proverbs today. We don't interpret Revelation the same way that we interpret Galatians. And so we have to understand that there is a different writing style and different literary uh, styles that are going on in the Bible. And we recognize that in the observation phase of our study. But also, when we're interpreting, we have to recognize this as well, lest we get off track. You think about how many uh, false doctrines exist from a failure to consider writing style. And then finally, there's a communication barrier. There are things in Scripture that are hard to understand. It's just the way it is. There is a communication barrier that that, that, that exists because there's an infinite God that's presenting a word to finite beings. In other words, the Bible is not always easy to grasp. It's just not. There, there There will always be things that we have trouble comprehending. There will always be question marks, but we got to be careful not to put a question mark where God has put a period, of course. We may need outside help from a commentary or a respected scholar, but there will always be things that are difficult for us to understand. Now, with that, there are some helpful tools that exist to help us in our interpretation. For instance, uh, there are Bible atlases. If you own a Bible atlas, then you know that it can be a great tool to help in these geographical barriers. Bible dictionaries, word studies, interlinear texts are also good for dealing with the language barrier. Bible handbooks can help with the cultural barriers. And there are commentaries that can be useful in dealing with with any or all of these. But I would caution any Bible student not to put too much stock in any one specific source, especially if you're not real certain about the author or author's. Because many Bible studies and commentaries or other tools out there can provide some valuable information, but they're also often written with a slant or a bias or a prejudice. You want to see this in action, just take a a study Bible and turn over to Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. And I think you'll recognize the bias or the slant. When it comes to interpretation... As we said, there are barriers that we must seek to overcome or at least recognize in our study. But then there are hazards, and these hazards are often self-inflicted. Many of the problems with interpreting the Bible are problems that man has created. Here's a few. The first is misreading the text. You know, we tend to pluck verses out of context and make them stand devotionally or make them just nothing more than inspirational uh, kind of sayings. You know, I think about Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can score that touchdown. I can, I can you know, score that goal. I can, I can hit the game-winning basket because God is on my side. When that is actually a misreading of the text, of course. You also have distorting the text. Making a text say what you want it to say. Interpretation terms, we call that uh, asegesis rather than exegesis. Uh, John 3.16 is a good example of this. Some use John 3.16 to say all you have to do is believe. And that's all that's required in order to be a Christian. Or Romans 10, 9 and 10 has led to many believing that a sinner's prayer is what needs to be uh, said in order to be saved. These are a distorting of the text and not considering all of context and what goes in to these words. 
Uh, also, there's contradicting of the text. You know, an example of this would be the faith-only doctrine that uh, Luther came up with many moons ago. Um, Luther saw the contradiction between Paul's writings and James' writings. And of course, his, his uh, conclusion was to put James at the back of the Bible, the back of his Bible, and call it an epistle of straw. There is subjectivism. So we cannot violate reason and common sense. Christianity is not a non-thinking man's religion. I remember one of my friends telling me one time that they were door knocking and asking if they could study the Bible with folks. And there's this one sweet lady that, that obliged and let him come into the house and they sat down to study. And as they were going through the gospel and the response to the gospel, he mentioned Acts 2.38 and how Peter said that uh, you must repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the sweet lady said that uh, that, that passage isn't in my Bible. And my friend said, well, of course it is. Let's turn over there. And he turned over there, and sure enough, it wasn't in the Bible. She had ripped it out. Um, there, are, there are some that have been guilty of ripping out things that they don't want to abide by. We've got to be careful with subjectivism. Obviously, you know, making the Bible say what we want it to say and removing the passages that we don't like is not a good method of interpretation. There's also relativism. You know, a passage cannot mean today what it never meant in the first place. We said that last time. A passage may have a number of applications, but by and large, it only has one interpretation. So we must always seek to discern the meaning that God had in mind. You know, for instance, some use scriptures to promote a health and wealth gospel or a prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it preachers do this. And so we must be careful not to take certain passages and contort them to fit some ideology that is not even found in scripture. And then, of course, we have overconfidence. And this is a big one because pride comes before the fall, and this certainly applies to interpreting Scripture. Some of the most heinous abuses of doctrine occur when people set themselves up as the authority. Just be humble in your approach to Scripture. You cannot be an authority on every biblical topic, and it's all right not to know. It's all right to come to a passage and say, I, I just don't know. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't understand it, but I will try to find an answer. It's okay to do that. In fact, we need to do that more. Interpreting the Bible is not always an easy task, as we said. However, we can make it a lot harder than it needs to be. We need to be reasonable and logical in our approach. And, as I said, we need to be humble in our approach. I have witnessed far too many professing Christians being inconsiderate, rude, or downright ugly when it comes to the interpretation of certain scriptures. You know, if your doctrine allows you to be rude and unloving, then it's the wrong doctrine. And if you cannot communicate what you believe without being rude and unloving, then, then you're wrong in your approach. It's just that simple. I don't care how right you may be in your doctrine. You're as wrong as wrong can be if you cannot present it or defend it with love. This doesn't mean that we need to be any less convicted. It also doesn't mean that we should avoid rebuking one who needs it, but conviction and rebuke still do not negate love. A lot of problems with interpretation and presentation would be eliminated if, would be, if we would just be humble and loving in our approach. Here's something else. You know, we don't typically communicate in random sentences or isolated thoughts. There's usually a flow, a continuity to our words. 
Sentences build on previous thoughts to produce a coherent message that gives shape and meaning and form to our entire conversation. Flow of thought is vital to understanding what is being communicated. For instance, we don't typically communicate like this. I was sitting in the deer woods. The grass needed mowing. I once ate a buffalo burger. The car wash is closed on Sundays. The quarterback threw an interception. The doctor says I have high cholesterol. We don't talk that way. When it comes to interpretation, we must play by the rules. Imagine a European soccer fan watching American football. There would be some confusion, right? If it was the first time they laid eyes on American football, they would see some discrepancies in what they call football, right? You know, in American football, anybody can touch the ball with their hands. In European football, only one guy can. You know, offsides is very different in American football than it is in European football. And the same is true with interpretation. We, we cannot just do our own thing. There are rules of interpretation that we have to understand that must be followed. There are a lot of differences when it comes to American football and soccer, you know, and, and there's a lot of differences when it comes to the way we understand Scripture. And so we've got to do our due diligence to dig deep, to play by the rules and find out what it is that God is actually saying. Not what we want it to say, not what we hear someone else saying it means, but rather digging deep to find the proper interpretation. And understanding the type of literature goes a long way with this. It's crucial to our interpretation. You are in no position to determine the real meaning of a passage unless and until you understand the literature. For example, the book of Revelation is understood to be written in apocalyptic language, which is symbolic in nature. But how many erroneous doctrines have, have arose from a literal interpretation of Revelation? To, to translate or interpret Revelation as something literal is to create a meaning for the book that simply isn't present within its pages. You don't read a menu like you read a love letter. You don't read a novel like you do the newspaper. You don't read poetry like you do the phone book. And you don't interpret Proverbs like you do Romans. You don't interpret Daniel like you do John. You don't interpret Galatians like you do Revelation. Different types of literature require different rules for interpretation. And of course, there are boundaries as well. There are certain limits that we have to operate within when it comes to application. For instance, we need to avoid going way beyond what Scripture has revealed. An example of this would be the Mormon practice of baptizing for the dead, supposedly based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Another example might be attempting to pinpoint the precise return of our Lord by an improper interpretation of Matthew 24, verse 36. We also need to avoid making applications that the author never intended. You've heard me say this more than once already in this series, but a passage of Scripture cannot mean today what it never meant in the first place. An example of this would be the practice of household baptisms to justify infant baptism, Acts 16, 30-34. We also need to avoid applications that are based on faulty translations or flawed interpretation. Now, I, I don't know that that needs to be said. That's rather obvious. But an example of this would be the New World Translation or the Jehovah's Witness Bible rendering John 1.1 to say that the word was a God. That's simply not a correct interpretation. And fourthly, 
Avoid applications that are illogical or unreasonable. You know, some use Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 to, pro- to prove that homosexual relationships are permissible. However, Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Leviticus 18, 22, you know, Leviticus 20, verse 13, 1 Corinthians, you know, 6, 9 through 11, a lot of different passages show that this is otherwise. I want to know what God wants me to know, don't you? If that is my goal, then I should want to go to every length possible to come to a a right conclusion. All too often, we see folks that are lazy when it comes to Bible study. Like we talked about a few weeks ago between the butterfly and the bumblebee. You know, the bumblebee digs in and does the hard work to retrieve what it's after and the butterfly just stays on the surface of the flower. Too many folks are butterflies. They just stay on the surface and they don't dig deep enough. We not only have to read through, you know, what is being said and observe it, we also have to dig deep to find the interpretation that fits the context God has communicated to us, and that is a really big deal. And we need to do everything within our power to understand what he's saying to us. And then we need to take what he says and put it into action. But we also have to be careful not to speak for God where he has not spoken. Unfortunately, we, we kind of do this at times as well. We try and pick up the slack for God. And all too often it starts with assumptions that the text just doesn't make. And so we've got to be careful with that as well. If you go to Scripture with the intent of being more like Jesus, with the intent of being transformed to the way you think, the way you talk, to live more like Jesus, if you go to Scripture with that intent, then you can't help but win. As we've said throughout this series, all Christian Bible study should be about learning to be like Jesus. That's the goal. And so when you sit down, you've got the goal in mind, and you know that at the end of it all, your your ultimate end is going to be to be more like Jesus. So when you sit down to read Scripture, pray this prayer, God, make me more like your son, because that should always be the goal.